listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. <laughs> All right, I see, no, I know what I'm up against. It's the Sunday after Christmas crowd, the few, the proud. So let's get into it. Psalm 103 is where we are this morning. Uh, we finished a few months working through First Peter, and so we're going to just do an individual message reflecting on God's grace and an upcoming year. And to do that, we're going to dive into Psalm 103. And so as you're finding Psalm 103, if uh, you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chair rack in front of you, for most of those Bibles... It's on page 502, and if it's not on page 502 of the Bible that happens to be underneath there, then then, um, just flip to the table of contents if you're not used to finding verses in the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, then uh, we welcome you to take that Bible and keep it. So as you're finding Psalm 103, let me tell you, after we've uh, got done with with, uh, a year and a half in Mark and then 1 Peter, uh, many of you have been asking what's next. And so a Sunday after Christmas is not a great time to start a new book. And so we decided not to start a new series. So what we're going to do is, for the next few Sundays in January, we thought it would be helpful to sort of recalibrate our mission as a church and what we see God calling us to do and our philosophy of ministry. And so there's three words that drive us here, gospel, community and mission. And by that we mean that God has made us his people through Jesus' work on the cross. And then he's put us into community to be a local church together. And then we are on a mission together. So we're going to look at those three words that form our vision for ministry and our lives here in this place. And we're going to take one each Sunday in the first three Sundays of January and then the last Sunday of January, is, as uh, Will and Reynolds mentioned, we'll, we'll uh, come around this idea of what uh, our responsibility is as a church for local and foreign missions. We've done this yearly for the past five or six years, end of January, this missions convention. And so we'll do that. And then in February, we'll start another book. Uh, and very likely, it will be an Old Testament book. We've got three or four kind of rattling around. Um, and we think maybe Genesis, maybe Judges, uh, maybe one other one, but it'll definitely be in the Old Testament. And so we'll be in that book um, for, for a good bit of time. And then we'll switch back into the, to the New Testament after that. So that is what we have um, coming up. But for this morning, let's look at Psalm 103. Now, um, are you the type of person, I'm wondering, that makes uh, New Year's resolutions? Are you, no, people are saying, no, that's not me, not at all. I'm just, no, okay, well, all right. I am, kind of. And I think that that's a healthy and wonderful thing to do. And let me just, I'm looking at them right now. Let me just add to Reynolds' comments. I see the Perkins is there. We are going to miss you. I did notice, Jim, that there is one light bulb out right over there. And since you, for a couple of years, have been kind of the light bulb guy, if you could get the ladder out after service and change it, that'd be awesome. Thank you. It's our going away present to you. One more one more risky climb up that treacherous ladder would be wonderful. No, we'll get it. We'll have Hawk do it or somebody like that. Um, but, uh, but there's a tendency, I think, for me to, when I'm thinking about this upcoming year, 
to, to just kind of go into sort of, you know, get it done sort of mode. You know, these are, these are the things that I need to just sort of grip the steering wheel and do, you know. And, and even a person that maybe has a, a good understanding of God and the gospel and grace, I think is especially prone at this time of year to just sort of kick it into, I need to do better. And it has been my experience that that type of grit and sort of Brad-centered resolve lasts till about the first week of February when I'm at my best. And then it sort of propels me into sort of guilt because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still the poor schlep that I was the previous year. You know, and I can't keep the Bible reading plan going. I can't work out and run as many miles as I thought I'd be. I'm back to my old habits of eating Cheetos at 11 o'clock at night, waking up with a headache, mad at the world, mad at my wife for buying the Cheetos. <laughs> and it's just sort of this kind of man-centered cycle of regret and resolve and, you know, have you, anybody else identify with this? Okay, one person, thank you very much. So, instead of doing that, I, I want us this morning to do what I think the Bible pushes us to do, which is to, before we think about becoming a better person or becoming a more productive person, I think we need to start with beholding the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of God. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to a sermon that um, the Lord used. is a very formative sermon for me a few years ago. And the preacher was using 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 as his text. And so let me read that. Stay in Psalm 103, but I want to establish this principle that I think is very important as we are on the, 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 just the edge of a new year. And he used as his text 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And this is what it says. Paul writes this, and he says, And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I think, and this is what this preacher was saying as he used this text to, to base um, his message on, is that before we can become or be transformed into the person that we hope to be in the future... That begins with beholding the beauty and the glory and the grace of God. So it's not, and I think we invert this order a lot, that I want to become somebody so that I can, you know, behold God in a better way. No, actually the inverse is true, that beholding God, seeing God rightly, is actually the foundation of our becoming more like Jesus. And so the title of this pastor's sermon was, Beholding is Becoming. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 103, this is a beautiful song, psalm, song that helps us to just behold, to see God. So the challenge this morning, before we run off into our resolutions, which can be a good thing to do, I'm not busting on that. But let's lay our resolutions, let's lay our desires to become, to improve, on this foundation of the 
glory of God, of seeing God in his all-sufficiency and his beauty. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll read Psalm 103 and work our way through it. Now, I know my crowd. I know that um, oftentimes I can get going a little long. And I know that I sometimes bust on sermonettes because sermonettes are for Christianettes. But I know my crowd. It's December 29th, and um, yeah, you are here, many of you, out of religious obligation, and I commend you for that. But uh, we'll work through this, and, um, and let's see the Lord, even, even as we're here on a sleepy post-Christmas Sunday, where in my house, some of us haven't showered since Christmas Eve. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we want to see you today. In fact, that's the great challenge of, of the Christian life, is to see you rightly. And from seeing your beauty and your grace and your all-sufficiency flows every good and perfect gift, flows every strength, flows every, every resolve, flows every, everything that we need for becoming more like Christ. So Lord, before we scurry off into to-do lists or workout plans or Bible reading plans or all of these good things to do, on this last Sunday of 2013, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts to see the beauty of the Lord, to see your grandeur and your grace and your glory. That would satisfy our souls. And from there, we would resolve and be the people that you are calling us to be with greater strength. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read Psalm 103, verse 1. This is a psalm of, of King David. He writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love that. That little phrase there, forget not all his benefits. As we stand on the edge of this year, looking forward to a new, a new year, I think a wonderful exercise for us to do before the clock strikes midnight on December 31st would be just to get around the table with your family or maybe a friend and to, to just list all of the ways in 2013 that God has been good, all of the benefits of God in 2013. Listen, I know that's awkward maybe for you, but maybe it's awkward because we're not particularly spiritually minded people. So I'm, I'm just challenging you now to, to just with sort of the people that you're closest to, your family, some close friends, to get around the table before the end of this year and list, just go through the ways, the benefits of God to you in 2013. Let, let that just be a, a sort of a time to praise God, to remember God, to not forget his benefits in 2013. Verse 3, 
who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I think one of the great challenges of, of living in a sort of Christianized American South is that oftentimes we obscure the gospel by presenting it merely as sort of self-improvement. These are three ways that you can, you know, be a more, you know, happy person or, you know, we're just kind of this general assumption that all of us are okay and that if we adopt, you know, kind of going to church regularly and being involved in the local church and we sort of, you know, sort of put the Christian veneer that, that, that God is there to sort of help us. But here in verses 3 and 4, David is talking about the saving work of God. He forgives us from our iniquity. He heals us of our disease. And ultimately our disease is sin and separation from God. And he redeems our life from the pit. So friends, it would be a wonderful thing to meditate on and remember that if you are a Christian, whether you were made a Christian in your 30s or 40s after a life of utter debauchery and crime, or whether you were a little child that grew up in the church with gospel-believing parents and you can't remember the time when you became a Christian, regardless, either way, whether you, whether you had some sort of public life of rebellion and then God saved you, or whether you were a good little church kid, God did not just merely help you, He rescued your life, our lives, if we're in Christ, from the pit. I think a lot of times we sort of present the gospel in our culture as... Uh, Jesus saving us from a sort of less than ideal life or saving us from, you know, accidentally bumping into something. No, friends, the biblical truth is is that we are all sinners and that we are running away from God in rebellion and that God's wrath and punishment is bearing down on us and that we are dead in our sins, and that Christ makes us alive and redeems us, not from a less than optimal life, but from the pit of utter destruction and separation from God. A couple weeks ago, I remember when we were doing our baptism service, and one of the young ladies that was baptized was talking about how she grew up in a good home, can't really remember a time when she became a Christian and at a time she struggled with her assurance as to whether or not she was truly in Christ because she didn't have some sort of crazy testimony. Well, friends, that young lady or the convicted felon who's come to Christ, both of them have really the same story. Every, every Christian is a story of resurrection, of redemption from the pit of destruction. Do you see God's work in your life that way? Maybe seeing that one thing would sort of position you to rightly see the grace of God, not as a mere helper, helper, not as a mere improver, but as a resurrector of your life, a redeemer, a a savior. And that's the biblical picture that David gives us here. Verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. And listen to verse 8. These next few verses are some of the most beautiful in the whole Bible. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does, listen to verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There's that phrase in there that he does not deal with us according to our sins. Now, friends, we know because we are people who read the whole Bible that that is true only of those who are in Christ. So God, through David, is speaking to his covenant people, Israel and the Old Testament at this time, which are an earthly picture of an ultimate eternal reality of Christ and his people. And so this doesn't just apply to people just because you read it. It applies because we are turning away from trusting in ourselves and trusting in Jesus who has paid the penalty for our sins. And because of Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross where God dealt with our sins, he doesn't deal with our sins anymore for those of us who are in Christ through punishment because he's dealt with Jesus on the cross who stood in our stead for our sins. But think about that picture now of of God who does not deal with his people who are trusting in Jesus according to their sins. I think I've told this story uh, years ago, but I, when I was a child, um, my mother, I, I was probably seven or eight years old. I was probably as old as my daughter Arabella. And um, uh, my mother had a purse that um, you know, it was kind of, I became very familiar with that purse, and uh, I, I latched onto that purse, you know, when she would take me shopping, that's the thing um, I would hold on to, and um, she got tired of that purse, and she um, threw it away, which was a devastating moment. I know this is totally embarrassing, and um, certainly for all of you uh, amateur psychologists out in the audience today, you will no doubt analyze me and my strange complex hang-ups after this. Um, and, I, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's much of that in this. But um, so in the block that we lived in, in California, we had like city blocks and be in between two city blocks there would be an alley where you'd put your, like here we put our trash cans out front on the street. There was an alley behind the houses and we would put our trash cans out back and the trash cans would, the trash trucks would go out behind your house in the alley and pick up your trash. And so I was a young child, you know, I heard that my mom was throwing away her purse. In fact, I saw her take it out to the garbage cans behind the house and I could not have that. And so I snuck out of my bed late that night um, while my dad was watching Johnny Carson, which was his every night ritual. Um, and and he, he was watching Johnny Carson. My mom went to bed at like 8.30. And so I went out into the trash can and I retrieved my mother's purse and I hid it underneath my bed. And then a couple weeks later, my brother who had um, a, a jersey, like a little 
kid's shirt jersey that I just sort of identified my older brother with, who was this, you know, wonderful brother that I looked up to. Um, when we became teenagers, he did some pretty, pretty difficult things to me, like locked me in the bathroom over a weekend. I think I've told you that story. But at this particular time, I was, you know, looking up to him and loving him. And um, uh, my parents threw away that shirt. It was so tattered that we couldn't even, you know, hand it down to me or give it to some goodwill or whatever. And this shirt, like his shirt was really important to me too. And so I had these like these strange attachment complexes with these items. And so they threw it away. And so again, a couple weeks later, I went, I went into the trash can and got my brother's shirt and I hid it underneath my bed. And so I've got these two sort of relics from my past, you know, like this, my mom's purse, strange, I know, and my brother's shirt. And then a couple years later, I had forgotten about them as a little kid, and my parents were like rearranging the furniture in my bedroom, got some stuff and move it, and they moved the bed, and underneath it is this old purse and this jersey, and they're like, ah, oh, you freak, what are you doing? Like, oh, are you, what's, this is my, what, I threw this away, so anyway. But the reason I tell you that story is that years later, after I was an adult and married, and... Jennifer and I were just kind of banging heads about something, um, and we were just kind of sideways. And I was looking into our past as a married couple and bringing up something that I feel like Jennifer had failed at, and I was sort of using it against her. Anybody? <laughs> By the way, pastors do not have perfect marriages. I don't know if you have that bump back. back Maybe sometimes they have the most challenging marriage because they're in this strange little bubble. And so I was like using some of her past failure or whatever it was, and it wasn't anything scandalous. It was just my assessment of her, you know, shortcoming in personality. In this particular, and I was sort of using it to sort of bash her. I was, I was repaying her according to her sins, right? And... It's like the Lord gave me this picture that I was like going out to the, to the alley, to the trash can of God's grace where he has taken her sin and he's moved it as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown it away. It's, it's gone. It's redeemed. It's, it's atoned for. Jesus has died for that. And I'm, I'm digging out that little convenient sort of sin, that little club that I can hide underneath my bed only to bring out what I need to appease and soothe myself and whack her over the head with. And I, and I do that to my, myself at times too, don't I? Because sometimes grace is hard to, to receive and, and I want to make myself feel like I'm earning this and sometimes my feelings of guilt soothe my soul because it feels like I've kind of earned it a little bit. You know, like, I'm, 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 woe's me. And I reach underneath my proverbial spiritual bed and pull out these, these relics of the past, these sins that God has forgiven, and I use them for my spiritual sort of benefit. Does that make sense to you at all? And it's like the Lord gave me this picture, like, I've thrown that away. Stop going into the, 
the trash heap of God's grace where he's removed it as far as the east is from the west and using it against others and, and yourself. And in so doing, you completely lose and forget and miss the gospel of grace. And so, friends, what David is saying here is that God isn't like that. He removes it. He, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now that does not mean that we don't have to deal with earthly consequences of our sins. But even those earthly consequences of our failures in the past, friends, are like God's grace reminding us never to go back like a dog to his vomit to that situation again. It's not God condemning, it's God teaching and instructing and pointing you towards grace. Praise God. Maybe some of us, maybe that's the thing that we need to see today, is God is not like some sort of karma, old Greek, Greek God that is sort of waiting for us to mess up again so that he can say, see, that's who you really are. No, that is not the biblical picture of God's grace. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. There's something about getting a little bit older that sort of humbles you, and um, you realize how quickly time goes by. And I think one of the, the great uh, things that God does when he matures a person is just to, you start to see yourself with a little bit more sober-mindedness, you know, and you realize how quickly life goes by. And maybe this, this particular portion of this text is, is maybe, maybe more for a younger person in here that you think that kind of, you know, you got all the time in the world to, to, to square your life away or to live right. I'm going to do my thing now. But eventually when I get married and have a couple kids and, you know, I actually invest in an alarm clock and pay a mortgage and have a utility bill and, you know, have to invest in something other than Starbucks ridiculously overpriced coffee, well, then I'll mature, right? But, but here David... The Lord is saying through David, but there's this sort of brevity to life. And, and, and man, his days are like grass. And so I think the implication is, is that I want to seize the day. I want to live in the moment. I want to be fully here and, and, and giving myself fully to God's work in my life because my days are like grass or like a flower that bl blossoms and then the wind passes over and it blows the petals away. I think we need to look at ourselves with a certain sober-mindedness, you know, and realize um, just how brief life can be. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant 
and remember to do his commandments. So we have this picture of God who is a good and gracious father who does not treat us like our sins deserve because our sins have been atoned for in Christ. And then he makes a covenant with his people. And again, this is where we need to know our whole Bible because if we read just verse 18 where God treats his people as this kind and gracious father, verse 18 might lead us to believe that it is sort of this thing where I've got to maintain these works to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. But ultimately in the Old Testament when it speaks of covenant, it's pointing forward to this covenant in Christ. So in the Old Testament, there will be all of these phrases like, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But ultimately what God is doing when he is commanding his people to walk a certain way is he's bringing them to a point of failure to where they realize they, they can't obey God on their own and that they need a savior outside of themselves. The whole Old Testament is preparing us for Jesus where Jesus comes and he establishes a new covenant with his people where we are saved not by our ability to keep the covenant but by Jesus's keeping of the covenant. And if we are in Christ, we are now covenant keepers who because of the steadfast love of God can walk in a way that God calls us to because he has given us what we needed. He isn't waiting to give us what he's calling us. He is giving us what we need through Jesus. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian is to trust in Christ and his work and not our own ability to work and please God. And from that covenant love of God then flows the strength to please God and walk as his child. In verse 19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's a a particularly important verse, I think, for American Christians to, to remember, especially in volatile times. Difficulty in the Middle East continuing. Continued war against terror now for This will be 2014, this will be 13 years longer than World War II, longer than World War I, longer than Vietnam, this current current war against terror that we're involved in, all sorts of political strife, debates about how involved the government should be in health care. All of these things, which are valid things for us to think about, can can diminish our view of God's sovereignty down to thinking that our hope rests in a particular legislation or a particular political party, or it rests maybe in American military might, or, or whatever. And again, all of those things may be may be um, commendable, earthly goals to pursue. But friends, we must lay all of that underneath this greater truth that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom 
rules over all. One of the most comforting and most biblical truths that I think we can approach this new year of much uncertainty financially, globally, politically, is to realize that nothing happens outside of the providence of God who is working all things together for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. There is not a particle on the outermost edge of the universe or a king or a president or a military that is outside of God's sovereign providential control. Nothing happens that God is not over and in charge of, friends. And wrestling with that truth and submitting your heart to that truth then puts you in a position to say that what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? And then finally, these last three verses. See what this transition does, this biblical picture of God who is a good and gracious father who redeems and who renews and who establishes a covenant with us so that we can now walk in his ways, who gives us what he requires of us through Jesus, his work on the cross, now turns us from being people who merely look at him as wonderful as that is to now being people who proclaim him to a world around us. And here's the transition in verse 20 we see of the psalmist David. He goes from beholding God to proclaiming God to the world around him. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels. You notice before he was speaking to himself as he looked at God. Now he goes from this horizontal or this vertical view of God and his glory to this horizontal proclamation to a world around him. So God shows himself to us so that we might see him and behold him and become like Christ for the purpose of then being a mouthpiece for him in the world around us. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul, bringing it back to himself. So there's this beautiful truth here we see at the end that a right view of God informs my view of myself and it informs my purpose on this earth which is to proclaim to those around me the beauty and the glory of the Lord. So as we launch into 2014, the challenge for us is not to muster enough resolve to stick with the list or the diet or the plan, but to behold the glory of God that we see in Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, where God makes a covenant with his people, where he calls them, makes them alive, gives them what they need, and sends them on a mission to proclaim to their neighbors and the nations, the beauty of the Lord. As we, as we look back and as we look forward, may we stand on this picture of God that we see in Psalm 103. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and respond to him.
Lord, I pray now that as we respond to your word, as we prepare for a new year, I pray that you would give us the grace not to forget the gospel and click into personal grit and determination as our primary source to fuel this upcoming year. I pray that we would see you rightly, that we would behold the glory of God, and that from our beholding you, from that would flow what we need to become more like Christ. Lord, for people in this room who maybe are not yet trusting in Christ, maybe, maybe they've grown up with a, a false view of you through culture or bad teaching, and they see you as a, a sort of taskmaster who does repay according to sins, and it's basically up to them to try and do enough to please you and if they hit that magic mark of, you know, just enough good stuff, then you will accept them. Pray, God, that they would be freed from that false notion of your character, that false notion of what it means to be a Christian, and that you would show them that there's nothing they can do in and of themselves, that you through Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, make people alive, that you give faith, that you give Christ's righteousness, and you bring us back to life through the gospel, through hearing about what Jesus has done, and you give us a new heart, and from that new heart, then you give us Christ's righteousness, whereby we can become so God for my friend in this room who has never seen that truth who's been on a sort of hamster wheel of just self improvement self determination Lord take them off of that never ending treadmill and let them see a picture of your grace in Jesus it is not about doing, but it is about receiving what Christ has done for them. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray, God, that we would, as we see you, that we would put our hands to the plow and that we would run into this new year with a grace-filled, gospel-filled Christ-saturated resolve to be changed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name.